0: As we continue in looking at the importance of the kingdom, we want to be reminded, really, in this particular section about knowing who God is and the importance of that. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, we're looking specifically at verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of god now the word kingdom doesn't really appear there but uh i think we have to recognize of course that the thought of knowing verse 17 what the will of the lord is is extremely important and i would even argue that what we see in verses 19 through 21 is a picture indicative of the kind of kingdom that god wants and in this sense, the church and the kingdom are one. We talked about last week how uh, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that the church in the, is the kingdom always. And so wherever you see kingdom, think church. And that's an extreme that we don't need to go to. In fact, we make a pretty major error when we do that. Because the kingdom itself can refer either to the ruler or it can refer to the ruled or the kingdom, the, the domain of the kingdom. I believe the church, in a sense, references the domain of the kingdom of Christ. But there are other places where kingdom really speaks more toward the ruler himself or his authority or his rule in our lives. But as we continue in this thought, in this series, we want to be reminded that how can I serve a king that I don't know? I would venture to say it's almost impossible. Any king throughout Throughout the years, throughout the centuries, if he wanted his subjects to act in a certain way or to do a certain thing, he had to make that known. And some people, of course, will say that God hasn't made himself known, but we have so many phrases, so many descriptions within the scriptures that show us that God has made his will known and he wants us to know his will. And so we want to know who our king is. We want to know the king. That's what we want to talk about today. The next few weeks, we're going to talk about, today we're going to talk about knowing the king. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about trusting the king. After that, obeying the king and finally being faithful to the king. The idea that we want, uh, now that we've looked at sort of the overview of the kingdom and what that really means, hopefully we can center in on our relationship to this kingdom and what that kingdom should mean to our lives, and so we're able to know this King. In fact, uh, if we think about uh, the kingdom as it was established and shown, even within the Old Testament, you've got the idea of King and Kingdom being separate words, of course, but used in similar ways. And David promised to his son Solomon that his throne there would be uh, one to to sit on the throne of David forever. And of course, that was fulfilled in a spiritual sense, not necessarily a physical sense. But knowing our king, the Israelites need to know King Solomon to follow him. Same thing with King David. But specifically as we go on here, knowing the king, knowing the king as for who he is, we're able to know our king. In fact, we're made in his image. Genesis one twenty seven says so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them we recognize that the fracturing of this image the breaking of this image is what has brought about so much struggle and so much suffering in the world Romans 5:12 refers to that just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin thus death spread to all men because all sinned and so the because all sinned aspect speaks of that. Colossians chapter 2, let's take a look there briefly. Colossians 2. We're trying to look at all these passages from a kingdom perspective to understand that, you know, our king has given us this lens to look at, to consider so in Colossians 2, and verse 18, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? And he goes on from there. But you know, if you notice back in chapter one, the sense that he is the head, you look at chapter one, verse eighteen of that same letter. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, then all things he may have the preeminence. So where do we mess up? We fail to understand what the image is. We fail to understand who the head is. And if we don't hold fast to that head, we've lost something. And we begin to be pulled aside into other places. Knowing God means seeking His image so that we can be more like Him. Seeking the King, knowing the King, means knowing our true selves. For this to be done, we need the proper heart. I have to have a heart that is moldable by God. Jeremiah 24, 7, Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return to me, with their whole heart. You ever look at passages that deal with that idea of wholly or entirely? Uh, it was said about Joshua and Caleb by God that they have wholly followed me. They have in, followed me with everything. They haven't hold, held anything back. See, we can't hold back from our king. If we want to know our king, we've got to be moldable to him. We've got to uh, have a heart of openness toward him. We've got to give up a cold, hard heart. Job 9 and verse 4, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and prospered. And of course, in Mark 6, 52, not long after this miracle, it says the disciples didn't understand about the loaves, the miracle of loaves, because their heart was hardened. This is the, this is the wall that stands between us and being able to be ruled by our Lord God. And of course, when we look back, and we think back to what we looked at last, last week, we looked at the total kingdom. Within the scope of that, you have the kingdom of Christ. And then within the scope of that, the eternal kingdom. The fact is, we're going to be ruled by God regardless. You know, the, the Bible says every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. The question is, are we going to do that willingly while we can? Or are we going to be forced into it, basically, in, in the end? And so the sense that we can't fight against him, we can't fight against this king, And one other aspect we want to look at is that when we think about knowing our king, it's the same thing really as eternal life. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We tend to think of eternal life as something future, right? We tend to think of something as some future reward. We don't have eternal life now, but we'll have it someday. The Bible really presents a picture where the Christian can gain eternal life right now where we need to have this sense of an eternal perspective about life because if we don't have that perspective, it's going to really interfere with the way that we live this life. And so eternal life is not just a future result of faithfulness. Jesus says this is eternal life that they may know you. Now further, we we want to look at the fact that God says they're going to all know me. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But The idea that eternal life as a Christian can be had right now. The idea that your eternal life begins right now. We need to have that perspective. And it's hard, it's challenging to think about it that way. But if I want to know my king, I have to understand that this is our reward. This is our ultimate reward, is that eternal life. We have a destiny as Christians. We have a place where we're going. We don't need to think that we're just sort of muddling through this life and just kind of going aimlessly. We have a place we're going. And God provides that. Our king provides that. Let's Think about the king himself. What are his attributes? Well, we have to recognize, first of all, he is a person. He's not a force. He's not just a power. The Bible shows God to be a person with emotion, intellect, and will. In what ways? Well, he communicates with humanity as a person. In John 1, 18, uh, we have the word. He has declared him. And that really, what we, when we look at that, we consider the worthiness of Jesus to discuss and talk about the nature of the Father. So no one has seen God at any time, John writes. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And so Jesus as a person, he has declared him. In uh, John 14, John 14 and verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Sometimes passages like this can be challenging for us because it gets into the nature of the Godhead, things that we really don't know about. How does this all work out? What are the nuts and bolts of it all? But the fact remains is that Jesus refers to his Father as a person. He refers to himself as a person, and he, he centers his appeal in that way, that he communicates with us in that way. He, he's not just this force. He's not just this impersonal uh, uh, being. He has emotion, he has intellect, and he has will. In fact, I would go so far as to say that God is a being in one with distinct persons. You have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit encased within that thought of this one being. The reason I say that is because the Old Testament shows us very clearly that God is one. He is one being, but he has these particular persons. God not only communicates to us as a person, but he calls us into account as a person. In Romans 14, we have this passage, of course, in the midst of the proper understanding of how we relate to each other and how we... uh, how we treat each other with these differences sometimes, things that uh, God approves of, these differences in that scope. But in uh, Romans 14 and verse 10, Why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore let us not judge one another anymore. He goes on from there. But look at that passage. As I live, every knee shall bow to me. Uh, he's not saying as it lives, or as whatever it is lives. He, he's calling us into account as a person. And so we have to understand our king is indeed a person. And he has, uh, he's not just a person though, is he? He is a spirit. In Acts 17, Paul declares the nature of this unknown God on morris Hill. And in Acts 17, it was in Romans, excuse me. In Acts 17 and verse 16, Consider what he's saying here. You know, Paul, uh, actually we don't really have time to read this whole passage, but uh, consider in verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their preappointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our very being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring." Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. It's interesting when we see passages like this, and you you see not too long after the New Testament was written and given, you have uh, groups like the Gnostics saying, oh, well, Jesus didn't exist physically. He was just a spirit. Or you have other people, of course, even today, Jesus was just a man. But the Bible presents both sides, that God is spirit and that he is a person. And I think within this passage, you have both of those aspects but the sense that he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He's above and beyond time. He's above and beyond space. He's above and beyond material existence. And in fact, he's not constrained by the things that he has created. He doesn't have any sense where the things that he's made put him in any particular place. Think about this. God's not powerful in relation to anything. What scale, you know, when you think about the, you know, the different scales of hurricanes, the different scales of tornadoes that the, the, the weathermen will, will say, what scale could we put God in? I think we would all recognize and understand there's no scale we can put him in. He's all wise and he's all powerful. And so he's not just a person, he's a spirit. Further, he has character. He's not just an impersonal being. He's not a far off distant uh, bearded man that just you know, doesn't really do anything God's character is his fullest expression to us about himself and in fact uh, the most important aspect is his holiness Second uh, Peter 1 is written be holy for I am holy that's the imploring cry that God is telling us be like me be more like me James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. The idea of holiness, of course, we want to think about the idea of separateness, uh, the distinction, the, the special place that he is to hold in our hearts, in our lives. And so the importance of this king, I don't think that we can overstate that at all, and his attributes, but think about this as well. Knowing our king involves more than just mental knowledge. It's not just about checking off the box and just saying, okay, I know this and this and this. I know he's I know he's a person. I know he is a spirit. I know that he has character. Um, it's really it really comes down to we need to think about what's God's purpose. What's the point? And when we think about knowing this king, we've got to understand what is his what is his goal. We've got to know the goal of this king. We have to understand what his purpose is, and his purpose primarily is voluntary submission. Think about this. This is a king who created humanity with the ability to choose. If he just wanted a bunch of robots, he could have done it, right? And we understand that. Adam and Eve had the power to be faithful to him or to choose the wrong path, and God gave them that power. God gave them that place. But God, in his infinite power, in his impressive kingship, creates humanity with the ability to choose. This is borne out uh, when Moses in Deuteronomy 30, 19 says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life, that both you and your descendants may live. You know, the sense where Moses is saying, you have the choice, you have the ability to choose. What king in this world would be willing to do that. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's harder for us to understand, I think, because of the country that we live in. But even think about this, like our government as a whole, how much do we have in terms of the, the ability to choose certain things? Sometimes we've got a lot of liberty and freedom in that. Sometimes we don't. But the reality is that we only have one king, That needs to be our focus and our thought is that he is our king uh, primarily because he created us, but also he wants us to choose him. He wants us to voluntarily follow him. And so knowing him assumes the conviction and will to follow him. I want us to look at John 12, back in the book of John, John chapter 12. John 12 and verse 25. Think about what Jesus is saying here and think about what this means in terms of, of what we're, we're considering this morning. John 12 and verse 25. Jesus says, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Think about what's going on here. What does this say about this? You know, Jesus, he knew what his father wanted, and he knew that he could have loved the life that he had, but he would have lost it, and he would have lost life for all of us and everything. But he understands that if someone wants to follow him, then there's going to be a relationship there. The fact that Jesus willingly died on the cross for all mankind proves that knowing his father, that relationship that he had with him, that closeness with him, involved more than just mental assent. Jesus could have just said, okay, yeah, God, we're together, we're allied in this, but then not done what he wanted him to do, right? They have that mental assent. A lot of people will say that's what faith is, of course, but there's much more to it than that. Jeremiah 31 and verse 34 specifically, It says no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the kingdom of Christ where we know God and if we don't know him we're not a part of the kingdom. It doesn't mean we have a perfect knowledge of him is speaking toward a relationship. And if I don't have this relationship with him, I'm not a part of that kingdom. We're going to talk next week about trusting the king. Part of trusting the king is trusting his salvation and the way that he set things up, trusting trusting uh, what he tells us. If we don't trust that, there's a problem. There's a problem. Let's ask, as we sort of close our thoughts, and we're just going to briefly go through these because we don't have a whole lot of time, but we got to ask, what does our king value? Who, you know, we're asking, I think, good questions here, the sense that, that, you know, who is my king? What kind of being is he? Uh, what does he set up for me? And of course, what does he value? He values kingdom souls. Ezekiel eighteen four. behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. God treasures our souls. They, they belong to him but of course they belong to him and then of course he has control over what happens to those souls Ezekiel 33:11, say to them as I live says the Lord God I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live turn turn from your evil ways for why should you die O house of Israel he was pleading with his people there's no reason for this to happen because you belong to me And I can lift you up. I can put you into this great place. I don't have pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's what God's saying. That's what our king is saying. Matthew 16, 26, What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So souls are important to God and they should be important to us. We should be looking at people in a sense that we see their soul and not just uh... their body or not just uh... who we think they are we've got to be able and willing to see souls because our king values souls but specifically kingdom souls people that are part of the kingdom put place a value on that kingdom treasure and this kind of gets into what uh... brother gary was talking about the, uh, during the first hour in the auditorium class, Luke twelve fifteen, he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. That's not what God treasures. Our king treasures contentment. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Don't have time to turn there. He treasures contentment, the sense that I have enough and whatever whatever I need, God's going to provide. And so he, he that kingdom treasure that, that we need to be sto- storing up for that. God treasures that, that. Our King also values kingdom praise. In John twelve forty two f- through forty three, many rulers didn't believe in uh, believed in Jesus, but it says because of the Pharisees they did not confess Him, lest this should be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. That's the praise that they treasured, and we need to think about that. What kind of praise are we treasuring? Galatians 1 for do I now persuade men or God do I seek to please men for if I still please men I would not be a bondservant of Christ then of course Luke six twenty six woe to you when all men speak well of you for so did their fathers to the false prophets uh, someone who is popular and well liked uh, that's a very dangerous position for a Christian to be in uh, because there's so much to pull us to the side and so much to pull us away our king values kingdom service 1 Timothy 4.8, bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. That bodily exercise, of course, is useful. But think about this. Think about what Paul is saying here. The best thing we could ever do here on earth pales in comparison, to, for example, to one soul being converted to Christ. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians 4. I want to read that together. Think about the encouragement that this passage can be if we really exercise it in our lives. Looking at 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I hope that we're beginning to sort of see the importance of recognizing the kingdom as we see it in scriptures. God values our true work as his servants, and this is good in terms of giving us motivation, because whatever I lose in the service of the king, I gain. Again, Brother Gary mentioned that this morning as well. Well, finally, gaining the kingdom. God wants you to be saved. God wants all of us to be saved. To be saved, we have to join the kingdom. And to join the kingdom, we have to give ourselves to be ruled by the king. We have to want to be a part of this kingdom. And so ask yourself this morning, am I really truly a part of this kingdom? If I'm not, something needs to change. We encourage you, we invite you at this time to think about your life, think about where you are, and we uh, exhort you to make your life right before God. Please do so while we stand and sing.